Welcome to the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast, the podcast created for you, the therapist who leads with your heart and loves serving your clients. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. I know that being a heart-centered therapist is immensely rewarding and powerful and intensely challenging and difficult. We're on this journey together. My mission is to help you continue loving your work as a therapist, surviving being a therapist, and feeling more connected as a therapist. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Heart-Centered Therapist podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Gozanski, and today I am really excited to bring you my guest. It's my privilege and pleasure to introduce you to Janine Wolf. Janine Wolf, LCSW, is a solo private practice owner, podcaster, creator of the clear method of assessing and documenting complex cases, and she's the founder of Collab Oasis Clinical Consultation Groups. Janine has been a social worker for over 30 years. She is passionate about supporting fellow therapists, focusing on clinical growth and normalizing the various aspects of therapy work that were not covered in grad school. She helps therapists practice sustainably while serving their clients and protecting their licenses. Janine launched the Collab Oasis Clinical Consultation Groups in 2020, a unique program that provides small group experience for therapists to get the safe professional support they need and deserve. Facilitating groups in an authentic, collaborative way is her superpower, and she loves welcoming new members into her Collab Oasis community. Oh, welcome, Janine. I'm so happy you're here today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here, too. It's it's wonderful to get to do this together. We've been friends for a couple of years now, and this is exciting. Yes, exactly. And we both actually started podcast kind of close to each other. And so we're on this journey together. It's it's amazing. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> the power of therapist networking. <laughs> 100%. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I love to start with my question, what does being a heart-centered therapist mean to you? Well, that really takes me back to the very early days of being a social worker. I did about the first 10 years of my career in pediatric hospice, which was so amazing for me to really get a great understanding of what this work is about, understanding how precious and important our work is, honoring the impact we have either negative or positive on our clients and not losing sight of our responsibility to do, to do good work and just really making sure that we are showing up with our heart in a good place, with our desire to meet the clients where they're at, to support them, to support their growth, but also to continue growing and evolving as therapists ourselves. Oh, that's beautiful. Wow. And, and what hard work to start out doing pediatric hospice. It, it was, it was hard work and it was such a gift at the same time, because these families were going through the most unimaginable thing they could experience and to be there on that journey with them and to help bring the community together. Because when a child is dying, the community will step up in ways you couldn't imagine. And I would see couples that were stepping up together for the well-being and the best care they could provide for their child. 
And it was just so important and valuable. And it gave me such clarity in my own life about what is really important here. Like, I remember one time we were rushing to go out of town, my husband and I, and I got a call that, you know, one of my patients was going downhill quickly. And I was like, here we are. My husband and I are bickering in the car because we're running late to be getting on the road. And all of a sudden I was like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> this is not the most important thing in the world. There's other real life hardships going on that, are, that, you know, just gives you that clarity. Yeah. That's a great, a great reminder for us, right? That things make us pause and really put into priority what's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It just sounds like that was work that was touching for you, like heart to heart touching of for you, for your clients, for the community. It's really, really powerful. It was absolutely. And it also, you know, part of the things that fed into me wanting to create Collab Oasis was we had such an amazing team. We had an interdisciplinary team, but we all were there for each other and we needed that support. And at some point I lost it over the years and we'll probably discuss this at a later point in here, but it gave me insight that we need other people in the work that we're doing to make it work and to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of, of the clients. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's, that's a huge passion of mine too, like creating some sort of community for therapists to feel less alone. I, I really hope mm -hmm. that sometimes even just listening to this podcast, my listeners will feel less alone because somebody echoes something that they're going through or that they desire, or they want more of in, you know, their personal or their professional life. So Janine, as you were saying that you realized that we need a team. So maybe share a little bit about being in solo private practice. At some point you started solo private practice and you recognized that it could lead to things like imposter syndrome, our clinical skills getting a little stagnant and isolation. So like, let's explore that a bit. Sure, sure. So I was completely unprepared for the isolation I was going to experience having left a group practice and going out on my own. I was in my little office by myself, I would see clients and then I would eat lunch alone. And at first it was exciting. There was so much I loved about working for myself, but then that loneliness set in and I started realizing I was having imposter syndrome. I felt like at the time that my clinical skills were stagnating, and I still don't know to this day if that was true or not, or if that was the imposter syndrome just really getting in my head. And at that point, I kind of hearkened back to something that happened early in my career when I was at the pediatric hospice, where I had a situation where we had a, a new administrator um, and I had come into the office and none of my colleagues were there yet, except for the administrator. And I had been preparing for supporting a family during a really difficult situation. They were having to make a horrific choice and I was going to be there with them during the day. And I came into the office and said, uh, I didn't sleep at all last night. I'm just so worried about today. I'm really, you know, hoping that I can support this family. And this new administrator said to me, well, if you feel like you had a hard night, how do you think the family felt? And 
I all of a sudden like went into the shame spiral. I was like, oh my gosh, I like, that's not who I am as a person. Of course, it's hard for this family. And I just was, you know, feeling so much shame and embarrassment. And I went and we got through the day and it was harder than I could have imagined, but I got through it. And I got home that night and called one of my colleagues and she said, Janine, you did nothing wrong. Your job is to come to the office to get support. We are there to shore you up so that you can go and do the work you need to do. And while I was having that imposter syndrome and that loneliness, I was like, that's exactly what I need. I need that team of people that can be there for me on those really hard days that I can reach out to and say, okay, yeah, my clients are dealing with these hard things, but I get to have this time where it's about me. And so I started at that point, realizing like, okay, all of this is related to me working by myself and I need a colleague down the hall. I need to have therapists that I can talk to and get the support that I need so I can do this really hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And that, that connection to that really painful time, right? Like that's just Mm -hmm. the worst, right? There's just no other way. You work so hard. You're, you're, you're such a caring, giving person. This was your, your, passion to help these these families right and to kind of be called out in that humiliating shameful way oh so painful I'm I'm sorry that happened because clearly right even though it was years ago it still is there right Absolutely. It, it is. And and unfortunately, that was the beginning of me realizing that that was no longer the place for me to be working because there was a significant culture change. I think it's good to have those experiences and gain the insight. And it gives, it really gives me a passion to make sure that other therapists, much like with your podcast and my podcast and my community, other therapists are getting the support. They're understanding that we all experience imposter syndrome or these moments of self-doubt where the work is really hard and we're trying to figure it out. And, and therapists set the bar so high, we expect ourselves to show up at 100% all of the time. And that's just not realistic. And we are so hard on ourselves if we have a session that afterwards we think, oh man, I should have said this instead of that. And, and so really getting the support from other therapists to help normalize that and to say, okay, but you probably did a really great job anyway, because the client doesn't know that you could have gone this other direction, right? <laughs> that's, that's so true. I'm smiling the whole time you say this, Janine, right? That number one, sure. The client doesn't know about our choice points when we're working in therapy, but are you really sure? Like we have these high expectations and we want to, we want to give hundred percent all the time. Are you really sure we can't? <laughs> so I think so many therapists, like we want to know that, no, it's possible. I think a lot of the time we can show up at a hundred percent, but we also need to recognize that things like imposter syndrome will impact our ability to show up a hundred percent. Things like stuff going on in our personal lives impact us from showing up a hundred percent. I think the pandemic was a huge example of that. For the first time, we were all experiencing the exact same trauma as our clients and it was impacting us greatly. And so we needed to step back or have colleagues help us step back and have some self-compassion that we are doing the best we can, but this is an unprecedented time for us. Mm, Yes, absolutely. That's so true. And just going back a second, I love that you named your podcast Colleague Down the Hall, because that's what you said. You needed a colleague down the hall. When you were in solo private practice, you realized you were missing that support. 
Absolutely. And I actually, a friend, when I was putting together the podcast and sort of, you know, planning the whole thing out, I, I say that all the time. Like, you know, when you're in solar practice, you don't have that colleague down the hall. And she was like, podcast. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. You're right. Because <laughs> I'm terrible at naming. So it would never have been that clever without her. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Tell us a little about your podcast. So my podcast is really designed much like yours to be directly for the clinicians about clinical work. I want people to, what I started with was doing live fictionalized case case consultations where I was bringing together groups of therapists. I was presenting a fictionalized case. I was having us like walk through that case and dealing with the gray area or the ethical conundrum and wanting therapists to be able to listen to that and affirm that, you know, our work is hard and there are so many areas such as the gray areas, the ethical conundrums, the toll on ourselves that we were not prepared for in grad school. So I wanted to have a place where I could normalize some of that for them, but then also expose them to therapists doing really great work that they can learn from and having places where they can get exposure to other types of therapy for their own trajectory of their career, possibly, or places where they can figure out, like, maybe I need some more growth here. So it's really, it's really aimed at supporting therapists in this work and helping them grow and feel supported, much like what you're doing with your podcast. Right. Oh, that's amazing. And so they also have the opportunity to enhance their clinical skills, right? Look at other potential approaches, um, really look at those ethical issues or have other perspectives in terms of how they could approach a case with the fictionalized cases. Um, that's, that's amazing. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I also kind of nerd out on case consultation too, <laughs> but it's been fun having therapists that I don't know come together and leading them through these cases and hearing everyone's different perspectives and that's really what we do in our consultation groups, hearing the perspective of somebody whose theoretical orientation or treatment modality might be completely different and what we learn from that and the insight we gain. And that to me is why community with other therapists, especially as a solo practitioner, is so important because we get to have exposure to those things that we wouldn't if we were just by ourselves lonely in an office. Right. And so that is kind of, what you were missing and you created, this is the beautiful thing, Janine, you created <laughs> what you were missing and then have been sharing it with other therapists. So let's, let's look at some of those things that, because I think people are still stuck with, okay, imposter syndrome, you know, let's call it self-doubt or feeling like a fraud. And there's so many definitions. One of my questions is whether you have seen imposter syndrome showing up differently for new therapists versus experienced therapists? I wouldn't say that it's showing up differently because most of us are still unaware when it's happening. So we need people to point it. Sometimes we recognize it ourselves, but oftentimes someone else will point it out to us. What I see happening though with more experienced clinicians is that 
sometimes imposter syndrome comes from a different place. And one of the ways I see that is when a therapist is working with a client and they're bumping up against a growth place. So they're feeling like this is imposter syndrome. I need to refer this client out, but really this is still a client that's good fit for them, but maybe they need to grow a little bit more with this, a certain aspect of working with that client or that client population. And if they get the support that they need and maybe some additional training, they can do a super great job with this client, but the imposter syndrome is screaming, no, 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 you can't do this. And so it's really helpful to be able to process that with other process that with other therapists who will say like, no, you are actually doing really great work, but this is where your insecurity is coming in. So how can we help you fix that? Oh, I love that. That's, that's so right on because we get to those grow, growing edges in our work and we can get insecure. That's normal. But mm-hmm. without that support of consultation or supervision, we may just like come to a stop or refer out. Right. So that's, that's really helpful. Yeah. What, what have you seen also that is helpful in managing imposter syndrome? Or for yourself. Well, yeah, honestly, and, and this is going to be my answer to so many things because uh, I'm such a huge proponent, but consultation with other therapists is so huge. One of the things that helps with imposter syndrome is providing really great consultation to someone else on their case and having them say, that was so helpful or having them come back the next time and say, that I had such an amazing session with that ther- that client because of the input you gave. And it helps you understand, like, I have good skills. I know what I'm doing. I'm actually helping people who are giving me feedback because the clients might give us feedback sometimes that they appreciate what we're doing, but it's on a whole different level when your colleague says that was so helpful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I used to have a, th- a therapist and supervisor, and she would always say something like, don't forget, you're a trained psychotherapist, you know, and even just that phrase stuck with me because it's like, you get, when you get stuck in session, don't forget, you know, you have this, this skill and the training. Absolutely. We have master's degrees and then we have thousands of hours of supervised experience. And we really, most therapists that I've met do a really great job. And I think that it's easy to forget that because our work is subjective and because we can be hard on ourselves. And so understanding that we do have great training, we do know what we're doing. It just doesn't always feel great in the moment. But I also admit to, and I've said this before, I've had sessions with a client where I thought, oh, afterwards, like, oh, that just did not go the way I think it should have. I'm struggling. I'm beating myself up. And then the next time they show up, they're like, last session was amazing. (laughs) And that always takes me by surprise because I'm like, I, we don't really see their side of it. Sometimes we're just looking at the things that we should do and the clinical skills and all of the theories and all of those things. But sometimes maybe it's because we're feeling insecure. They're, they're relating to us on a different level. And that feels really authentic to them. Oh, that authenticity piece is huge. I think when, when we're real and show a little bit of our vulnerability, you know, I'm not sure if this is helpful or, you know, I don't know if, if this is exactly where we're going, but any kind of, I think, expression of, your real self, or your even a little bit of a struggle, you know, uh, can be helpful for the client. 
And I don't know if this happens to you too, Janine, but kind of what you're saying, they'll come back and they'll say, oh, remember when you said this, that really helped me. And of course I didn't say that thing. <laughs> they remember something you said in a different way, but it's, it's always great. Whatever works, whatever is helpful can be so healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and our clients really care for us so much. That has become more apparent to me over the years, even during the pandemic, having clients say, how are you? Are you doing okay? Or clients that will say, you know, have you had vacation in a while? Maybe, you know, like I worry about you. This work has to be really hard. Have you had a vacation? And that's so wonderful that we can have that type of really authentic relationship with our clients. A hundred percent. I'm so glad you said that. And I, I think it's really important for my listeners to take that in because we're always starting our session. You know, how are you? How was your week? You know, what's up, what's something that's been going well in your world, right? And the client might say to us, how are you? And how are you? And we brush that off. And you know what? That's dismissing to your client and they do really care about us. They care about you. So maybe just take that in and really respond in a little bit of a deeper way, whatever is comfortable for you in terms of how you are when they ask you that. That's that's beautiful. Absolutely. And I think it, one of the things that I try to normalize, especially in today's world is that we cannot be a blank slate. We are, and I don't, I was in grad school in the nineties. I don't know if they're still teaching that now, but this whole idea of showing up as a blank slate and just being there hundred percent for the clients, it's not realistic. Our world has changed so much. And there's so many dynamics that are coming into the therapy room now. And expecting that nothing is going to phase us, that, that people aren't going to say things that might be hurtful for us and recognizing really that we're not a blank slate. We do show up as humans. And I think that's important for our work as therapists, because I will have clients say to me when we're discussing maybe a conversation they have with their spouse, and we're talking about communication skills and looking at the insight, like what was their perspective when this is happening? And, and they will say, Oh, you must have the most amazing marriage. <laughs> and I like, I, and so, and actually sometimes I will find myself in the middle of talking about something. I will pause and say, and just so you know, I'm here as an objective person helping you. But in my life, I fight with my husband. I have parenting moments that I'm not proud of. I have conflicted relationships with people in my life. So just for you to know that there isn't a perfect person on the other side of this room talking to you, that we are humans as well. But I have an objective way of working with you and normalizing that for the client. Yeah. I encourage everybody to play that part back, right? That that Janine just gave you what you can say. I have an, an objective way of working with you and I'm human. I'm human and a therapist. I fight with my husband. I have my parenting moments. I also love to bring in actual, you know, goofs that I've made in my own marriage. You know, I'll say, okay, so I did this and, and my husband who's more evolved than me might have rocked a communication skill way better. And I will share that with my clients. You know, of course, that's a comfort level that I have. Not every therapist does, but that's, I think, part of us not being blank slates. You know, it really goes for me to this place of like infusing love in our work. And I know that a lot of therapists don't really like that language, but leading with love in terms of working with our clients therapeutically, 
with it with boundaries, but showing that care and that deeper heart-centered love that really makes them know that we want the best for them. We care about them. And I think you coming up with like the pediatric hospice work at such an early time in your career showed you the importance of infusing love in your work. Absolutely. Yes. And and in addition to that, we are done a disservice by not being taught how to responsibly self-disclose, like you were given the example of, that we, most of us are taught no self-disclosure. And I don't believe that's possible to have an authentic relationship with our clients, but we need to know that there's responsible ways of doing it. So in my head, if I'm deciding I'm going to self-disclose, I'm thinking, is this because I just want to say this to someone? Or is this because there's a reason that this client is going to benefit from hearing this? And so instead of being taught we're a blank slate, never self-disclose, let's learn some of these parameters around this because our clients want some of that. They want to know we're human. They want to know we're relatable. And and that self-disclosure can serve that purpose. Yes, absolutely. So this self-disclosure part of our conversation seems to go into a little bit of the gray areas, or um, you have such a, a great way of putting it, the things we experience in our field that we're not really trained or prepared for. What are some of those, some of those things that we really need to normalize and learn more about? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, one, one is the personal impact that this work has on us. I know that we are not we're not trained to manage that, which is hugely d- a disservice to us. We are raised up to believe that we are going to make very little money. We're going to work really hard. It's all about the client, and that's just the way it's going to be. And we give we give of ourselves. And I think setting that expectation for therapist is what leads them to get burnout from overworking and not taking care of themselves because we are taught that this is really going to be a hard job and it is what it is. And so we're not taught about how to recognize burnout, how to prevent burnout, how to understand what it is. There's also so many gray areas and ethical conundrums and the potential for legal issues. And I say this regularly in my groups. So if you ever were aware that this type of thing could happen when you were like considering this as a career, would you have ever gone into this work? You know, because this, you know, this, this idea of trying to decide if we need to make a report to CPS, knowing that if we make the report right now, this child who's not in real danger, but is at risk, might lose all of their resources around them. And now they're in a worse off place, but we're told we have to make that report right away. Or areas where the ethics are bumping up against the legalities, you know, and ethically I have to be there for this client, but legally I'm being told, well, my client's in another state where I'm not licensed, so I can't see them. So how do you make those two things come together and really make the best decision you can? And then on top of that, we're not taught, we're not taught a process to work through that. And then we're also not taught how to document that. And those are two things that have become really clear to me since I started Coab Oasis, that we need to have an understanding of there can be a process to managing these things, 
there can be a framework. And then we also have to document it ourselves so that if we get investigated or taken to court, we can demonstrate we did our due diligence. Because I, my experience is that, that most therapists do a really great job in doing their due diligence in these areas, but they don't do a great job in documenting it so that if something happens, they can say, okay, let me pull out my notes and I can tell you exactly how I came to this decision. And not only does it involve my own process, but it involves talking to trusted colleagues and getting their insight and experience as well. Right. So all of that goes so far to safeguarding your license and having having evidence and documentation that you can present to the board, the courts, whoever is looking at the situation. Absolutely. And it would really give the therapist so much sense of reassurance that, okay, I've, I've dotted the, the I's and crossed the T's and I've consulted with other colleagues who had a say in this. Absolutely. And helping each other own that, okay, this is a gray area. I absolutely see why you're struggling with this. And so let's talk through this and come up with the best answer. There's not a right answer in so much of what we do, but there is a best answer based on our skills and our experience and the case presentation and all of those things. And so instead of falling asleep, worrying and not sleeping that you didn't handle it the right way, you can have that confidence that I met with five or six colleagues today. They affirmed that this is a really hard situation. They helped me talk through it. And now based on all that, I'm able to figure out the direction to go. And I'm also able to document that to protect myself. So I'm making sure that the client is getting the best care and that I'm also protecting my license. And look at the confidence. Confidence is key there, right? You're confident about the skills, about the consultation, about the direction that you took the case and what you did. And that confidence is so important for therapists across the board. Right. It comes, it starts with the clinical skills. And, you know, we just, we just took it all the way to like the ethical conundrum. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so what you're doing and what I'm hoping to do as well is normalizing some of that, calling it out. So people recognize this is something that happens in our field and there's something I can do to get support around it. There's still going to be those times where you're sitting with a client and you're thinking, please stop talking. Don't tell me this because now I'm going to have to make a hard decision about what to do. And having somebody say, wow, yeah, I'm so sorry that happened because now you are in a tough place. Now you are going to have to make a decision. And this is someone's real life. There are safety issues here. It's important that we get it right. Exactly. The safety issues, but also Janine, it just really helps when, when you can share, like, that's really what we go through. Sometimes we might say like, Oh no, I don't want to hear this. Are you sure you really have to tell me, you know, and, and also new therapists. I work with a lot of associate level therapists and students and they get scared. They don't know, like, what would it mean if, you know, if my client died naturally or, you know, by suicide or, you know, something like that. What does that mean? And they, you know, they get really scared, not just from the personal and clinical level, but legal level or, you know, all kinds of things around protecting and safeguarding their licenses and how to document like this came up actually. Okay. A therapist goes away on vacation and you agree to cover for them. If a client of that therapist contacts you, for a session, how do you document that? They're not your client, 
So that might be a great example of like a fictionalized case that you would say in this situation, somebody does X, Y, and Z and go join Janine's Collab Oasis community to figure this out. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be my community. I love having new members and I'm super proud of what I've uh, put together and created, but reach out and find those colleagues for yourself. If that, if something like what I offer is not for you, find it for yourself, put it together for yourself. Because it's interesting that once we finish supervision, you know, it's hard work. Sometimes there's a lot of money involved. We're finally licensed. We're so relieved that that part is behind us, that we forget the value of having that feedback and the benefits of that. And even really seasoned clinicians will say to you, this is so helpful for me in my practice and in my clinical growth and the work that I'm doing. Right. Is there, is there something that you conceptualize as different with supervision versus consultation, the way you've set up your groups? Absolutely. So it really is a definite, and I think that this does somewhat vary by state, but the way I describe it to potential new members is that supervision means that you have somebody who is teaching you or guiding you or overseeing your work while you're learning something. And they are responsible for your case, as well as you being responsible for your case with consultation. The therapist is 100% responsible for their case. Their colleagues are giving them opinions, insights, feedback, that can be tremendously helpful. But the bottom line is the clinical decisions that that therapist makes are their own. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And there are some therapists who are experienced and choose to still meet with a supervisor, you know, which is probably more in a consultative role because obviously they're fully licensed and hundred percent responsible for themselves. But I can see the overlap of the consultation in that case. Absolutely. And I think it's wonderful when licensed therapists seek out supervision. If you are working with a particular case that is really stretching your skill set and you want to make sure you're managing it correctly, then finding somebody who's really skilled at that thing and consulting with them. And in our field, we don't want to spend money. Um, on things like that. And I think it's important to recognize that there's benefits to paying an experienced colleague who can guide you and budgeting for that and making sure that you can afford that so that you are growing. You know, we gain ourselves personally so that you're growing in your skills. You're providing the really best care you can for that client. And so supervision absolutely still has a place once you're licensed. Yes. Yes. You are such a great therapist, supervisor, consultant. Janine, when when did you, like, was there a, a moment or a time when you realized that you were a really successful therapist? When did you realize you were really successful as a therapist? I'll let you know when it happens. because <laughs> I, I think it's hard to come there. I do believe that when I was creating my community, I remember that huge imposter syndrome and saying to a colleague, like, who am I to think that I can facilitate these groups and like help other therapists? Like, who who am I to think that I am this person? And it, it became really clear to me by working with the therapist and starting to get in there and doing it that 
uh, okay, I do know what I'm doing. I do have some experience. I don't have the suggestions or input or insight for every case that gets discussed, certainly in, in our consultation groups, but getting that feedback from you know, from colleagues that, wow, that was super helpful, or I love the way you said that, or that insight is not something I would have ever, you know, come across myself. That is so affirming. And that's when you start to be able to say, okay, maybe I'm pretty good at what I do. Okay. And then tomorrow I'm going to have a hard session and I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm the worst therapist ever. You still get nervous, right? It doesn't matter how many years of therapy you've done and how often you've sat in that chair, you might still get nervous. That's, that's completely normal. Or, you know, we second guess our moves, but the other thing I see for you, Janine, is just your passion, your passion for this work and for your, um, and your passion for this work and for the expansion of the field and really elevating therapists to have what they need in solo practice, community, better, skills, um, not feeling so alone and having that confidence, your passion for that makes you such a great therapist too. Thank you. And I think that we all grow together when we connect with other therapists. And so there's so many different benefits, it benefits for the clients, benefits for us personally, benefits for our pers- our clinical growth, all of those things are huge benefits that are kind of unique to this field in some ways, but it's something that if you haven't experienced or you haven't, for example, you might've been in supervision in the past and it's been a while and you forget how beneficial that can be. If you ha- And I have to qualify that because when I was doing research for my program, I came across so many therapists who either had really bad supervisors that were critical or judgmental Um, or they were in consultation groups where they didn't feel like they could be um, vulnerable because people would make shaming or judgmental remarks to them. So, you know, there's lots of ways that getting the connection with other therapists can be so helpful. And, And try again, you know, find a different group, find a different supervisor, just like we would find a different therapist if it wasn't the right fit. Try again. That's, that's so important. Absolutely. Finding the right fit is so important. You know, as we're talking about this, I realized you briefly mentioned the pandemic, but what would you say in terms of dealing with burnout and you, you really strive to help therapists find their work as fulfilling and sustainable. And I know it's, it's through the support of the communities. What have you seen in terms of like burnout for yourself or for other therapists lately? Well, for myself, I, I, you know, maybe six or nine months into the pandemic, you know, we all brought, we all had no idea what this whole thing was going to be. And most therapists that I know brought on more clients thinking we're kind of putting a stop gap into this crisis, not recognizing it's going to go on for a very long time. And now we're seeing more clients than we should for our own well-being and we still have the phone ringing off the hook and so recognizing that it shows up in different ways and you need to learn the signs and it's interesting what first occurred to me was i realized that i would be in a session and i would think that the session had been going on for a really long time and for some reason 12 minutes was the thing the point for me but i would look at the clock and it would be 12 minutes and i would think oh my gosh 
I have been meeting with this person for 12 minutes and I'm already like done with this session in my mind and in my, you know, like my emotional abilities. And to me, that's like my first indicator. Burnout is happening. You're going to have to do something about this. It's also really helpful in the groups. We'll have somebody who's discussing a case and I or another member might say, you know, you have brought like three really hard cases in the last couple of group meetings that we've had. How are you doing? Are you taking some time for yourself? Are you recognizing that that you are, if not already crispy from burnout, heading in that direction. And it's so helpful to be able to have someone else help you see that, but also know what are the signs in, in your own self that letting you know, okay, this, this is where I'm heading and it's going to get worse if I don't do something about it. Right. And, the, you know, we could go over this a million times, but the fact is when, when the signs hit, you really need to take care of that. You need to do something. Um, and that's so true. And I agree with that self of therapist, like really checking in with your colleague or with yourself about how am I doing, right? This was a hard session. This was a hard day. This was a hard week. And take that time. Like like your podcast says, colleague down the hall, check in with them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And, and some of the work that we do in the groups too, is if you're dealing with a challenging case, setting the, the intention going into it. So for example, I'm seeing a lot of therapists and my own clients that are kind of stagnating right now because they're, they've been through a lot, they're exhausted. And so where we see a client that we could see this progress going in our mind, we see this, this path that they're going to be on, but they're not there but they're showing up every week. They're just, they're using the session wisely. They're not growing, but they're remaining stable. And I think that's hard for us as therapists to, to recognize that at times, but recognizing that providing that stability is sometimes the best that we can do and recognizing that so I know this case is challenging because I'm going to go into it feeling like I want to make progress, but that's not where they're at. So I'm going to set an intention before the session that my goal for this client is to show up and be there for them. And whatever happens is what they need today. And then I'm going to give myself a little bit of time after the session to do what I need to do to take care of myself and, and, and be okay with, with that happening, because I think we are trained to help people and see them make progress. And it's really hard to work with cases where there are reasons that that can't be happening. So brilliant. So brilliant. Set that intention. This happens and you're giving my listeners the permission to say, yes, that is also progress. And you are showing up with the client where they're at and really like pat yourself on the back in a way that you can hold them. You've been holding them through this time and their stability continues. And that's not some small feat. Absolutely. Yes. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I do want people to practice sustainably. So sometimes that means looking at 
How many clients in a row can you see and do good work before you need a break? How many total in a day can you see? How many days in a row can you see a certain number of clients? And really learning that and recognizing that that's going to change as your life changes, as the world changes. And that's something we need to constantly be assessing. I worked nights for many, many years, and then I realized I'm not doing my best work at night anymore. I've got kids at home. I'm exhausted. And so I cut back on those hours and the clients were able to, we either referred out or made it work, but I was able to say, this is something that I need to do for myself. And I think we're so fortunate in private practice that we can have the flexibility. Obviously the income piece is still important. You still need to make the income you need to support your bills and all that kind of stuff. But I can say to my clients, I need to shift my schedule or I need to change the way things are going so that I can continue doing this work. Right. And, and that's the human piece that we need to look at too. You know, it's, it's that sense of imagine we need stability as well. Just like that client you were talking about who might not be making those leaps and bounds of progress, but they're stable. Sometimes that's something that we desire and that's okay. Yes. Maybe you can't get that if you're if you're seeing eight or 10 clients three days in a row, that might be too much. And so just really check, checking in with yourself and with, you know, your needs and, and hopefully there's a way that you can renegotiate things a little bit. There's always a way. We just have to get creative. And I Absolutely. think it's great that therapists can sometimes go out of the box a little bit with our schedules or, you know, how we work in office, online and so on. Absolutely. And a phrase that I have found myself saying so often to other therapists is we need to put ourselves into the equation because we're trained that it's all about the client, but it truly can't be only about the client. We do need to take into consideration a case that's maybe taking a huge emotional toll on us for whatever reason. Maybe we do need to refer that client out because if I am giving everything to this client and feeling exhausted, it will impact my other clients. It will impact my emotionality. It will impact my well-being. And so we have to look at ourselves as well. And that seems to be such a foreign concept in our work. <laughs> Put yourself in the equation. That's great. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant advice. Absolutely. Well, Janine, tell us more about the Collab Oasis and what exactly it is. And as I think people are going to be so interested in learning more about how they could work with you. Yes. Thank you. I, I it's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> so, so basically the, the first thing I say to every single person that asks me about it is the culture of my community is the most important thing. We have a culture of benevolence and respect, and that goes in terms of I onboard every single new therapist. And we talk about use of language and how to provide an alternative perspective without disagreeing or shaming somebody, how to correct someone who's using outdated terminology, how to be supportive. And truthfully, I think our, my onboarding process helps some with it, but I also think that people that seek me out are looking for this safe community that I offer. So every therapist, once they're onboarded, they are put in a group of six to eight therapists that meet 
twice a month for 55 minutes. And my sole job is to facilitate the groups. My job is to make sure everyone is getting what they need. I have a system for people to request time. So we know who needs time that day. I'm constantly looking at everybody to see, do they look like they're doing okay? I've discovered that the introvert, the introverts in the community keep their mic muted. And when they unmute, that's my cue to kind of say, Hey, Cindy, it looks like you had something you wanted to say here so that they can feel a little bit more pulled in. And so basically the 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 point of the, the program is obviously the primary goal is to provide clinical support. But we also talk about what it's like running a small business and policies that might be difficult and marketing and financial aspects and working sustainably. But then we also talk about how our work impacts us personally and how our personal lives impact our work and normalizing some of those things. So those are the types of things that get discussed. And there are times that we have groups where we don't discuss cases at all. We talk about, hey, someone will say sort of embarrassingly, um, I'm behind on progress notes. And I will say, if anyone else has been behind on progress notes, raise your hand. And they're so relieved to see everyone else raise their hands because they've experienced this and to normalize those things and to help them feel okay about it. But then say, how can we support you in fixing this? Because clearly we got to do the notes, whether or not we like them and something's not working. So how can we support you? So having all of those types of supports for people is really important to me. And then I also want my members to have connection with each other outside of the groups. So each, um, each member gets a roster of their group, of their phone number and their email address. So if between sessions, they have a really hard case, they can send an email out to their whole group and say, hey, I made a CPS report today. I'm not going to sleep tonight. Can anyone get on a Zoom with me? And then we use reply all. So we know someone's got that person. And sometimes they'll meet with several people. And that way you're getting that support. And, and because you know these people, you've learned to trust them. And the vulnerability that I've seen, people that have come very ashamed of something that's happened and seeing the loving support that the other therapists provide for them and the support that, okay, I see why you're ashamed, but let's normalize it. Or yeah, that probably wasn't the best decision. So let's figure out how you can move forward. How can we support you in, in fixing this? Because we all make mistakes in therapy and we all need to have some support in recovering from those mistakes at times. It's so beautiful. It just, it just sounds unbelievably valuable. And I mean, that's, that's huge. We carry, we carry so much on our own shoulders, right? And sometimes it's shame about, you know, being behind with our notes or, or something else. Like that's a great example. Not even being sure how to call CPS if we have to make a report could be, you know, like any of these examples, we can slice it thinner. There's so many things that we don't, we don't always know, but when you have that safety of a group that you can trust and other therapists who have been there and have experience and they're happy to share it with you, that's so valuable. And it sounds like really cool. So like six to eight therapists in each group and it becomes pretty intimate, I'd imagine. It does. Absolutely. And, and so they are, are fully licensed. I do verify everyone's licenses. And I do ask when members join that they commit to a minimum of six months, because when someone leaves a group, I do fill that spot, but it's not, we don't have people coming and going all the time because I do want that cohesiveness to form. And so committing to that first six months, oftentimes they'll continue after that. 
but um, that, that way they really get to know each other. And as I said, some examples where people have just shown up so vulnerably and done something that they are ashamed of that just needs to be normalized, or maybe it really was a misstep. And how can we help you recover from that and minimize the damage or make repairs if you need to. And, and knowing that no one is going to say, I cannot believe you did that, but they're going to say, wow, that sounds really hard. And at some point in the conversation, it always comes back to how are you doing? Okay. We've discussed the client. We've discussed what you need to do clinically, but how are you doing? This has to be a big, you know, a big weight on you. Who else, who else asks us that, you know, absolutely. Think about that. You know, who asks you, how are you doing? And most of us don't have people in our lives who truly understand this work. They think they that we just sit and talk with people and they don't understand the complications of the work and the toll that it takes on us emotionally and even physically being present with those clients. And so having people, like I said, we have sessions where we just talk about how hard the work is and having someone go, yes, yes, it is really hard. And I get why you're exhausted. And that's so affirming and so necessary. Who doesn't want that? I mean, it's so true. Most of, most of our friends and family have no idea what we do. They, they really don't. And yet we long for that. We long to be seen just like our clients want to be seen. So again, putting yourself in the equation. That's so brilliant, Janine. It's great. Yeah. Thank um, you. I just, I feel so um, really privileged to have started this community because I get to see amazing therapists doing really amazing work and supporting each other and truly rising to the occasion for their, you know, for their colleagues. And it's, it's such a wonderful place to be. I get this kind of bird's eye view also of changes that are happening in our field um, or patterns or trends, which really helps me with my own clients, but also kind of normalizing things for the other people. So it's, it's just been an amazing experience for me to be a part of all of this. Yeah, it it really sounds so great. Um, you're working now with so many experienced clinicians. And if you were to think about yourself as just starting out as a therapist, what's something that you would go back if you could and tell yourself as a beginner therapist? I think the message really would be be kind to yourself. This work is hard. And you're not going to always get it right. And so really embracing that self-compassion, because again, most of the therapists that I've, I've worked with have the bar set really, really high and they don't give themselves much grace when, you know, something's not going right or they're feeling insecure. So be kind to yourself. I love that. We all need to hear that. So, so powerful. Um, well, Janine, I also want you to share a little bit with our listeners about your podcast and where everybody can find the Collab Oasis and your podcast and your Facebook group and all of those great things. Absolutely. So they can find out more about my, my um, clinical consultation program at collaboasis.com. That's spelled C-O-L-L-A-B. A-O-S-I-S. It is a made up word and there's a long story behind it. <laughs> it's kind of grown on people at this point, I think. Uh, they can find the podcast on all of the major 
um, platforms as well as at colleaguedownthehall.com. And my Facebook group is, um, it's a closed Facebook group for therapists. It's called Therapist Peer Consultation and Support with your colleague down the hall. Yes, right. And I'm in that group. It's a great group. And, you know, after after listening to Janine, I know that my listeners are going to be so interested. Check out her podcast and check out her community because who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And the commitment is small, six months, but the the reward is great. It really sounds amazing. Um, Janine, I just really want to thank you so much for coming on here, but especially for what you're doing for our field, how you are really showing up so fully for other therapists and helping them to create sustainable professional and personal lives. And it is just so needed. And it's a real gift that you're bringing to the world of therapists. So I really want to thank you and acknowledge you for that. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. And I'm I'm so thrilled that I got a chance to do this with you today. It was fun hanging out and chatting with you. And also, I just, I so admire what you're doing with your podcast as well. It's just you know, the ther- therapists really need more of these avenues where it's not all about business building, which I think happens a lot in the realm of private practice. And it's also about the clinical work and the personal impact and all those things. Yes. I'm, we Thank you. Thank you. We both re- really share that, that same dream and vision. And I'd love to have you back and talk about trends in therapy, because that is really interesting. And I think our listeners will be very curious about some of these new trends, both new therapists and experience. Yes, absolutely. I would love to come back sometime. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I invite you to subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.